creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And today we have on a near and dear friend of ours, Reverend Dr. Dan Morrison. Uh, he is an expert on the book of Revelation and has worked in all sorts of things. He is a Navy Reserve chaplain. I got that right. Uh, apparently, if you use the word army anywhere in there, they shoot you on site. And rightly so. Uh, and he did his PhD at McMaster Divinity College under uh, a certain friend of the show, Cynthia Westfall. And so, Dan, we are just head over heels to have you back with us. It's always a good time to talk with you and no better time than the present to talk about gender, the book of Revelation, hermeneutics and symbolism and prophecy and all sorts of things. But thank you for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. And there's a backstory to having you back because <laughs> Someone, someone's cat ate the, uh, the footage and corrupted it. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And yes, it's good to be back with you again this time. Hopefully there won't be any cats or gremlins or goblins. <laughs> Although if we take aspect and time of the book of Revelation, this is just a repeat cycle. Boom. There we go. There, this, as God is predestined, so it shall be. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, Dan, uh, would you mind uh, telling us a little bit about just generally how to interpret and approach the book of Revelation, especially what is a symbol and how is it used in Revelation, kind of some of the intertextuality issues, and how do we just not come up with ridiculous interpretations? There we go. Oh, dear. Not coming up with ridiculous interpretations. I'm pretty sure that when we stop and look at the book of Revelation and we hear, you know, we see John talking about beasts rising out of the water, rising out of the, out of the earth. But here's the key thing. I don't think that John has seen a beast so ghastly as those who interpret his book. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> because when we stop and we look at the book of Revelation, we find a lot of different things. We find a lot of symbols. We find a lot of signs. We, we see apocalyptic and prophecy merging together in ways that we don't see in any other portion of scripture to this extent. In some ways, it's almost as if John, who was on the Isle of Patmos, is simply, you know, copying what he's seeing the prophets do in the Old Testament. He's copying some of the Second Temple literature that we find within pseudepigraphal works, and he's meshing it all together to give us this great message about Jesus. So signs and symbols and prophecy, oh my, how do they come together in this book? I think, first of all, we need to recognize what prophecy is in order to gain an understanding of the entire book. I mean, the book opens up by saying, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And I'm happy he didn't say, blessed is the one who understands the words of this book, okay? Because we'd all be in trouble if that were the case. But here's what I find. Prophecy is that which falls into two categories biblically. We have foretelling and we have forthtelling. 
Foretelling is what most people think of as prophecy. This is going to happen at this particular time next week, sometimes in contemporary charismatic circles of which I've been a part. And so we, we have that framework. But foretelling is more so this idea of this is what the Lord says. Remember the covenant you made with the Lord God. Now you are actually in violation of that. Therefore, prophecy gives you the just judgment of God based on one's lack or their failure to uphold and keep the covenant. So it's not simply that which is going to happen that's birthed out of some randomness in God's framework in time. Prophecy is basically the foundational presentation of God's just judgment against those who have failed to keep his covenant. So that's round one, prophecy. Round number two in Revelation, symbolism. When you read Revelation, you should read it like a political cartoon. I mean, think back for a moment to look at, for those who might remember Saturday Night Live on NBC. If you were not aware, or if you were to go back today rather and watch SNL sketches from the 1980s, and you had no clue what was going on politically or socially during that time, you would not get over half of what is going on on SNL. It's just an impossibility. You don't understand SNL at all. If you are socially aware of what's going on today and you watch SNL, it makes sense to you. So what we have to do as contemporary readers of the apocalypse is we have to figure out what is going on socially within John's framework, within John's context, within that point in history, in order to make sense of the political cartoon, of the satire, of the SNL sketches that John is presenting to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So the signs and the symbols all come together and they point to those greater things that are happening behind the scenes within John's context, within the Roman Empire, within the world of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And that's the key thing that you have to look at as you are approaching and reading Revelation. So you're telling me I can't just pick it up and immediately understand exactly that the, the, the beast is the, uh, well, uh, the uh, Russian Empire or the Catholic Church or both, depending on what political party I tend to align with. You're telling That's me I Europe. can't. Yeah, you tell me I can't just do that. There, you mean there's a context Nikolai. to all that there's a context to everything <laughs> that John is writing? You're telling me there's a context and a historical particularity and also a history of of scripture and interpretation that he has in mind that he's kind of seeing play out as he's talking and seeing and writing. You're telling me there's all of that as I'm trying to breathe and finish the sentence. <laughs> Nailed it. There's all of that involved in the book of Revelation. And that I think is the amazing part of what we find within this text. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you try to read the mess, the first epistle to the Corinthians without any context whatsoever, you're going to get lost. That sounds like what a lot of us do, though. And see, here's the thing. When you stop and think about it, we, we have this way of reading Revelation that's unlike anything else we ever read. Sure. I mean, you know, when we take lessons in hermeneutics, if you go to Bible school or even take just a, a study in your local church on how to interpret a text of the Bible, the, we have some foundational basic frameworks. One, see what it could have reasonably meant to the original audience to which the writing was written. Two, make application of those principles in our lives today. 
Seems pretty basic, right? So we do that from Genesis to Jude, minus some sections that we use to interpret Revelation, like some portions of Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And we're like, well, this rule doesn't apply to them. So we take those little sections of the Bible along with the book of Revelation, and we take everything that we have learned about how to read the Bible and throw it out the window. I want to challenge that popular, I'm going to make it about whatever I want to make it about. No, it's not about Nikolai Carpathia. It's not about <laughs> the, the revived Roman Empire, as, as Jack Van Impe used to always say, mm. being the European Union. It's not about any of those things. This is about the message of God calling his people to faithfulness to him in the midst of an oppressive empire that is aiming to wipe out the church of Jesus Christ within the current culture. Amen. And let, let, me, let, me, let me give you one quick thing, because I, I use the word, and I, I don't want this to become about culture wars. I said within the current culture. When yeah. I talk about the current culture, let me just put all the chips on the table now. Over half of the time, people in the church are divided about things that have nothing to do with the church. Huh, true. People in the church are often divided over things that have to do with worldly empires and have to do with the world. Well, newsflash, folks. In Revelation, it says, the kingdom of the world has become that of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So that means no matter what worldly empire you are a part of, no matter what country you live in in this world, every worldly empire will fall. And let me make it even clearer for you. No empire in the world today is the kingdom of God. Therefore, no matter where you are, brace yourselves because your empire will fall. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, I'm not a doomsday prophet. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, and I mean, okay, so, you know, for to put a spin on it, and again, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Um, I, that should be clear just throughout history and interpretation. You know, even people didn't really get the first coming. Right. Um, is it two messiahs or three, you know? A right. king and a priest or, you know, so we don't know. We don't know how all this is, is going to play out um, uh, foretelling or foretelling um, entirely. And some of it's unfold. It's always unfolding too. Um, but I mean, is it, you know, it all, it will, whatever we have now will come to an end and maybe in a positive way, maybe yeah. it's going to be painful. Who knows? Like it, this can play out a variety of different ways, but um, on that on that note, um, you touched a little bit on how we should read it in terms of you, I like what your analogy about the political cartoon, for instance. Yes. How should we see what is okay? What is a symbol, and how is it used in the Book of Revelation? Before we get into some of the gender symbolism. Ah, so symbols are usually those things which point to something else. They represent something else. So, for example, if you are to read. I'll have to use this because I think it, it fits very well as far as a symbol is concerned. When you look at the book of Revelation, you find a beast that rises from out of the sea. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't think that there's actually going to be a physical beast with seven heads and 10 horns that's going to come out of the ocean or out of some body of water. And then the question becomes this, which sea is it going to come out of? Where is it going to go? Wait a minute. I mean, is it going to breathe fire too? I mean, all of these things I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, remember fairy tales as a kid where you have the, the big gigantic evil dragon that's like trying to destroy everything. 
That is the kind of thing you see in Revelation. And really and truly, when you come to this, what do beasts represent? Well, recognizing apocalyptic, you have to understand, John is already identified as being on the Isle of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is not a good thing. It's not like he just went to Patmos to receive the word of the Lord. No, he is there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Throughout Revelation, people die for the testimony of, 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 of um, Jesus. They die on account of the word of God. And so all of these things come together to reveal to us there's something greater going on. So what's a beast in apocalyptic literature? Beasts are evil rulers who are oppressing God's people. Yeah, they consume. They don't, they're not for the good of the people. Right. And so here's the thing. John, who's already on Patmos, likely in exile because he's a Christian, can't just turn around and be like, hey, everybody, just so you know, the emperor is empowered by Satan himself. The, like, the empire is demonically inspired. Therefore, avoid it all. Yeah, like you can't talk about certain things when like evil dictators or rulers are in charge. You have to, people have to pick up on the subtext. You got to be smart. Yeah. And, and like, people are good at finding ways around. <laughs> like Exactly. And John's like, well, I don't want to just go out here on a suicide mission. Like I'm willing to die for the Lord, but I'm not going on a suicide mission. So I'm going to write this and send it to everybody. So everybody's aware. Here's what's going on. Remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. But you can't say, well, the emperor is, is empowered by Satan. That's going to take you really yeah. far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and we see that too, right? We, we read C.S. Lewis. We, we read the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. We understand the symbolism of the stone tablet and the deep magic and Aslan as a lion. We understand. We don't need to go, God is really like a lion. It's like, no. There's a point to the image that's being used that's meant to communicate something bigger or greater or more profound than what you see before you. doesn't mm. mean the symbol is not important, but the symbol points you to something. And I think right. that we, we focus on the symbol and miss the point of the symbol. Well, and symbols can lock in a lot more information than otherwise, you know, it, it's not like, I don't know, I, I just, I don't think of it in terms of we're just going to be coy and say something without saying it. I mean, we are, you know, right. on the other hand, a symbol also locks in quite a bit more as well, conceptually than you could just by, I don't know, stating paragraphs and paragraphs of information as well. Exactly. I think that that's, that's a key thing for us to recognize and understand. And so, I mean, people say, well, what does this represent? And that's what people jump to. And so, you know, in a highly symbolic book like Revelation, we have to learn to read between the lines of what's being said, but also yeah. not then impose unreasonable things because we, we have yeah. to remember, oh, wait a minute now. What would the original audience have reasonably understood? For example, these horse-like creatures with, with long hair like women's and like tails like scorpions that sting the people. Well, if you talk to people, especially in today's society, well, those are Apache helicopters and see the sting of their tail is like, you know, <laughs> they're, they're shooting at people and people are dying because of war. And, and the, the sound is actually like the, the motors of the, of the choppers going at it. And, and I'm like, no, Dan, it's the UFOs. Tell me the facts. Oh, but see, I thought those were quiet. Man, <laughs> it's the lasers. I got it. It's the lasers. <laughs> uh. But that's the kind of thing that happens all the time people will begin to 
It's sort of like how I heard one guy say one day, you cannot read the gospel of Mark and interpret it in any reasonable way to make it about polar bears dancing in Alaska. Mm, give me some time. Give me some time. I'll work on it. I mean, okay. that'd, that'd be the one paper you ever publish. <laughs> First and last. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I won't say where. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Uh, all right. So how does, okay, so given that, um, how does intertextuality work with some of these symbols? Ooh. Intertextuality is very, very key in our understanding of a text. So to, to break down intertextuality, especially in New Testament studies terms, a lot of people just simply resort to understanding it as the New Testament use of the Old Testament. And I'm like, no, that is not intertextuality. What the issue is, the, the texts in and of themselves serve as interpreters of one another based on what we gain and understand. So a great example of this is actually in Revelation, in the messages to the churches. So we have this whole framework of the mention of Balaam in the message to the church in Pergamum. And, you know, people are following the teaching of Balaam, who he put a stumbling block before the people of Israel. So if you are aware of the story of Balaam, the first thing, and he actually mentions Balaam and Balak in Revelation, in, in the message to the church in Pergamum, that's in chapter two, verses 12 through 17. So now, if you see the names Balaam and Balak, then you are aware of the story, possibly, that you find in the book of Numbers about how this royal figure, Balak, actually hires Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Well, every time Balaam goes to curse the people of Israel, and there's this whole weird nebulous thing in the Old Testament about this man who's not of the people of Israel, but he hears from God and functions prophetically, which we aren't even going to touch that right now, okay? Because that's just some weird mess. But It's kind of like God interacts with all sorts of people. I don't know. Can't have that. Not never. But he turns around and he, he's going back and forth. And every time he goes, he goes like two or three times to try to curse the people of Israel. And every time God gives him a blessing to pronounce on them. Well, <laughs> Balak is like, dude, what are you doing? I told you to go curse these people. I paid you good money. I need my money back. You can't curse these folks. Come on now. Like that's his whole approach. And so all of a sudden, Balaam's like, well, you know, maybe we can do it this way. They're faithful to their God right now, so it's impossible to curse them. But if you like get them involved in some sexual some sexual immorality, some idolatry, maybe a mix of these two things will be good. So then you have Moabite women who go out, lead the men astray into sexual immorality. They get involved in idolatry and all of this stuff. And then when you go and you read the book of Revelation, what you immediately find is, what are the people holding to? They're holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might do what? Eat food sacrificed to idols and engage in sexual immorality. Well, now let's remember, these people are functioning under a Roman empire. They're functioning under an imperial rule. They're functioning under a, in a place where there are royal figures who are trying to influence them to basically let go 
of their faithfulness to Jesus. Let go of Jesus and hold on to us. And so if you are familiar with that story from the Old Testament, you then see how it streams into what's going on right now. Not only that, but think about it. Jesus appears to this church as the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Remember, he had this whole sword that comes out of his mouth and whatnot, right? So here's the interesting thing. Jesus tells him, hey, if you don't repent, if you don't get it straight, I am going to come and lay the royal divine smack down on you, and, and I'm going to wage war against you with the sword of my mouth. Wait a minute. So they are holy to the teaching of Balaam. Well, go back and read in Numbers, a couple chapters after that, and read in the book of Joshua. Balaam dies by the sword. Maybe, just maybe, this whole intertextuality thing is guiding people in understanding and recognizing, oh, wait, I'm going to suffer the same punishment as this dude if I'm doing the same things he did. The same thing happens when you get to the last message to the church in Laodicea, where there's all this stuff about wealth and money and how, you know, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I have no need. And there's this really weird little line that if you're not careful, it's almost as if it makes no sense whatsoever. Because in verse 19 of chapter three, it says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And you're like, what? He was talking about all this money a moment ago. What happens? And so many people jump to Hebrews. No offense to Cindy on this as a, as a Hebrew scholar, but people jump to Hebrews on this. But I don't think that the appeal is to Hebrews there. It's actually to Proverbs 3. Because you see in that passage, just before this a very similar statement of the Lord disciplining those he loves, therefore he says, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. He says to honor the Lord with your wealth. Well, these people aren't doing that. Maybe the whole connection with the proverb is that they recognize that they need to honor the Lord with their wealth. And so that influences how you read the rest of that message to the church and how that church should read the rest of Revelation as they receive it. And so even for us today, like we should be reading it through that same lens and thinking, you know, as we interact with our own empires and, you know, and, you know, totalitarian governments and other such things, um, how, how do we how do we live in light of the scriptures, uh, Revelation and uh, what's called the Old Testament? Yeah. And it, First and it, Testament. And it, it forces us to look at John as a narrative theologian, in a sense, John mm -hmm. Lister, because he's and this is the thing that I saw growing up. Revelation can be whatever you want it to be as kind of a thing. The problem is when I, when I started discovering intertextuality and, and symbolism and genre and just reading Enoch and other apocalyptic texts and being like, John is so rooted in the first Testament that he can't help but see how everything now is being, is a product of the narrative of, of the first Testament, whether Isaiah or as you said, Proverbs, I, I, you said Hebrews and saying, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure Hebrews. Then you said Proverbs three. I was like, ah, that's that sounds like Proverbs. Uh, but just that idea of John is bringing in all of these threads to weave something uh, from the fabric of the Old Testament, and we kind of lose the Jewishness and the context. And a good sense of intertextuality kind of forces us to go, no, John's a Jew, reading and living in a situation as a Jew. That's history. That's particularity. That's 
that's context. That's basic interpretive hermeneutics. It kind of gets us away from the flights of fancy about Apache helicopters and the, <laughs> the Roman Catholic Church and all such all these other things. Well, you can thank Luther for the Roman Catholic thing, by the way. I, I, that's what I was raised with. You know, I'm just saying I don't believe it for an instant. I, that's just what I was raised with. It's just that's mm. I, I'm not thrilled by it either. Yeah. Well, I mean, narratives kind of here's the thing too. Narratives kind of let you do that a bit, um, and that's because. You know, in, in a sense, uh, like scripture's not, scripture allows you to kind of go off the rails and not understand anything that's being said, which is a little bit of a scary thought sometimes. Um, sometimes I think scripture wants you to sit with it and use it to interpret itself. And for people that don't want to do it, it just kind of says, all right, here you go. You know, um, there's a gap there that you can fill if you know, if you think and are meditating on the word of God. Um, and sometimes people will fill it with things that are, are not part of scripture. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Roman Catholic church and all those sorts of crazy things. <laughs> and the helicopters. Helicopters. Do, 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 do. Nikolai Carpathia. <laughs> I wish we all been ready. Oh my gosh. We've been. So yeah. Guilty time. pleasure. Um, yeah, guilty confession pleasure. time. Yeah. yeah. So I read, uh, every one of the left behind series and I, and I liked it. Um, I I don't believe it for a second, but I was like totally into it. And then I also read the uh, teen child versions, all of them. And I read the backstories. So I read the Antichrist as a kid. Like, so. Okay. I was right there with you. I was looking to see, but I don't see it. I actually, like major confession, I have a Tim LaHaye prophecy Bible. Yep. That I got as a teenager. And so I, I thought about getting rid of it and I hid it in my last office. I hid it away so no one could see it. And then I was like, ah, this is a testimony to where I've come from. Just own it. Like, I mean, I liked it. You know, what can I say? You know, it, I don't believe it for a second, but I liked it. It was great. Yeah. Like, no, it wasn't. It's like, it's just guilty pleasure. Like you're, you, you ate a crap ton of fast food that was just really bad for you, but you just did it and you liked it. And that's just who you are. Yeah. Mark of the Beast telling you you shouldn't do it, but you do it anyway. No, okay, no, okay. <laughs> Mark of the Beast, sorry. We're, yes. we're gonna, we're, we're gonna go it. here for just do a it. second. So, COVID vaccine. Oh no, no. In, See, now in, we're gonna get demonetized. No, just kidding. No, we're, we're not, not, we're not even- We don't even make money off We're this. not even we're monetized, good. so go for it. <laughs> no, so, the COVID vaccine. So, I made a post on, on the internet, because I mean, I, I got my second vaccine early February. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you and I, yeah, both got around the same time. Yeah. And so then I made a post online and, you know, I just, just so people wouldn't be worried about like the destiny of my, uh, of my eternal soul. Good for you. I, I actually took it in my left arm both times. <laughs> Be- I mean, I get it now. Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> because and I, I had people coming to me asking me all these weird questions. And they said, well, do you want your right oh. arm or your left arm? And I said, I said, I'll take it in the left. And so that way, when people came to me with additional questions of being the mark of the beast, I said, well, I nullified all the demonic powers of the enemy with the mark by just taking it in my left arm. Because it says right hand to forehead in the Bible. Yeah. Go read Revelation 13. That's what it right. says. Yeah, right actually, you know what? I did, too, I did the left hand, too. I did the left arm. Because coincidentally, our uh, left arm... <laughs> coincidentally my writing hand is on the right so there you go i'm safe so 
No, but then I had this whole situation where people began to ask me, mm-hmm. well, do you think it's the mark of the beast? And so I just stopped and I said, okay, wait, 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 time out. Let's think about this for a minute. Tell me what you think the mark of the beast is. He's like, well, it's like this thing that like, if, if you take it, you're going to like worship Satan and go to hell for all eternity. And I said, okay, that's what you think the mark of the beast is. Now, why would I, a Christian minister, take something in order to go worship the devil and die and go to hell for all eternity? You know what? Okay, it comes down to left behind books. No, it comes down because you nope. went to seminary. Because <laughs> all them seminary folks end up dead someday or another. And... Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's like the red, <laughs> the red shirts in Star Trek. Yeah, Dan's <gasps> wearing a red shirt. Oh, okay, I am. <laughs> but you know his name, so he's safe. Um, uh, yeah. So left behind books. Okay, this always like haunted me because there's a story in there where this guy. He got the mark out of self-interest at one point, but mm-hmm. then he became, he, he tried to stave it off because he was disabled in some weird way. Um, but then he got it anyway. And, but then he changed his mind. And so he was actively helping the Christians and believed in God, even though he was doomed to hell and mm-hmm. everyone knew it. He was going to hell because he already took the mark. It's too late. And he died and went to hell basically. Yeah. So Dan, yeah. like, watch out, like, well, yeah. <laughs> And that was the funny thing. So I asked the guy, I said, so why, so why would I be taking it as a Christian minister? And he goes, well, maybe you were deceived. And I said, well, if I were deceived, why would you be coming to me asking me for advice if you think I'm deceived about this? And then it was like, oh, I didn't think that far ahead. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> On that note. On the power of symbols. Yes. Okay. So now that we have... <laughs> some interpretive keys and some things not to do, ample things not to do, many things not to do. Um, What are some, just generally speaking, and we can go into some more detail in a bit, um, what are some female symbols or female concepts in the book of Revelation that, and what are some bizarre interpretations, there we go, that you've seen for some of these? Oh dear. Before we go into the, the correction. Yeah, bizarre interpretations of female symbols. They abound as they do with all other portions of, of the Bible. But um, I would say that ultimately that you find four major female symbols in the book. You find one in each vision. So first of all, let me give you a little bit of framework for Revelation. I think that there's um, four visions in Revelation and they're bookended by the um, prologue and the epilogue. And because of that, what you really have is you have this great introduction, you have the four visions that John has, and then you have this closing, but there's a, actually a woman in each vision. So the first vision I would say is chapters, uh, like chapter one, beginning around verse nine or so, basically right when John has his vision where he's like, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he begins to see one that looks like a son of man, and then you have the messages to the churches, that's vision one, and you have a female that's mentioned directly. Name is Jezebel. Well, if you know anything about the First Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Jezebel is not a good character. (laughs) Just saying. Then you have that the second vision, which starts in chapter four, verse one, and takes you all the way through the end of chapter 16. So all like your, your throne room scene with God, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, 
are all one vision within the book of Revelation. And you find a very positive female figure who is the woman clothed with the sun who gives birth to the male child that's taken up to heaven. Hmm, wonder who that male child is. Then in the third vision, which goes from 17.1 to about 21 in verse 8, we have a negative um, female image. And this is the harlot. And like I say, she, she's bad. Like harlotry, bad. What she does, bad. It's in the name. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, oops. And so you, you have all of these pieces that are coming together to highlight that one. And then you have in the very final vision from like Revelation 21, 9 to 22, 5, you have the bride, the wife of the lamb, very positive figure, especially between those, you know, wait, the harlot and the bride. Those are two major things. One of the things that I like to say quite a bit, and sometimes people give me this weird look for it, but when we look at things, the harlot rides the beast, the bride does not, okay? Take that how you will, but in the image that, that the vision that John has, the harlot rides the beast. The bride should not be riding the beast. The bride should not get in bed with the beast. I'm gonna leave that at that before I go too far. And that's not something the book of Revelation skimps on either. There's some imagery in there comparing powers and all these sorts of things. It's put, they're, they're in bed together. We will we'll say that. It's, it's pretty explicit in John's vision. Pretty much. So, I mean, so things that people have said, people have tried to paint um, Jezebel as virtually the only woman that you see, the only feminine imagery that you see. But what I really find is that there are four, four female images, four female symbols. And, and though Jezebel is not explicitly identified as a symbol, I think the fact that the woman close to the sun is identified as a sign that John sees in heaven. The fact that you have the harlot, well, this is a visionary experience that he's having that's being interpreted as he goes along the way or that he's interpreting for his audiences. Then you have the bride who, is, who is, he's explained as the, the, you know, the, the wife of the lamb. And as a result of that, you have all of these frameworks that come together. I mean, I have, going back to Lutheran Roman Catholicism, because now you've got me on this like whole kick with that. Thank you very much. You look back at it and when Luther does his, I mean, Luther who, who actually say that Christ is neither seen nor known in the book of Revelation, decides to weaponize the book of Revelation and weaponizes the word of God. Yes, I said it. He weaponized the word of God, something you don't want to do, people, against the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. So what does he do? In his illustrated version of the book of Revelation, he decides to draw papal crowns on every evil figure. So he draws papal crowns on the beast. He draws papal crowns on the harlot. He draws papal crowns on everything that is not of God throughout the entire does that, world. Does that imply if he drew a papal crown on the harlot that he thinks women can be in charge? If he's actually given her that symbol? Ooh, just that she's associated. Oh, that's true. Okay, fair enough. All right, I'll stop. Yeah, all right. <laughs> nice try though, but I like it. But so, so there are actually people who assert it Oh, this was good. People would say, see, 
here's why women can't have any teaching authority in the church. Here's why women can't be in leadership in the church. Here's why women can't do these things in the church. It's because Jezebel has come in and is a false prophetess and she's doing these things. And because she's doing these things, women can't do this. But I'm like, okay, but what do you do with the other positive female symbols in Revelation? What do you do with Hymenaeus and Alexander whom Paul kicked out of the church? Just straight up kicked out of the church, leading to the shipwreck of many faith. Or maybe we're like the women, women of the sun and we bring forth the word. Mm. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Smash right. the symbols there. And so you, you have all of those pieces that come together. And it's like, you, you can't just, you can't arbitrarily pick and choose which symbols you want to use. You have to take the book as a whole. And as a whole, there are good women. There are bad women. As a whole, there are good men. There are bad men. And so I think that we can't actually just go and cherry pick what we want to suit our needs. We have to take, to use a phrase I grew up with, the whole counsel of God and read it as a whole. I remember actually hearing someone, I was talking to a lady just a couple of days ago, and she said, yeah, my daughter who um, has interestingly noted that the Bible begins with women on a bad note and ends with women on a bad note because women are blamed for the fall. And then we see Jezebel at the end of the book and we have this whole framework of how women are depicted negatively by, by scripture. And I said, okay, I would tend to disagree with that. And they say, well, well, how so? I said, well, if you actually look at Genesis, the Bible never blames Eve for anything that happens in the fall. In actuality, when, you, when God confronts them all, he confronts Adam because he gave the instruction to Adam. Not only that, but even as God's starting to go through and like basically dole out judgments, I think this is very important. He tells the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Oddly enough, I grew up watching Superbook as a kid and I had this one on videotape. And I remember this one so much because it's like God just speaks so authoritatively. And he's like, upon your belly shall you crawl and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And so I remember this whole passage because of that. Thank you, Superbook. But then you actually have this thing where he tells Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Wait, let me stop right there. You can't just stop and say, well, see, there it goes right there because see, he listened to the woman. No, 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 no. That's not what goes on. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. So it's not that he listened to the woman that made it bad. It's that he listened to the woman and in listening to the woman did that which God had commanded him not to do. What did, well, how, like, who saw it coming? It'd be the content, uh, not just like a blanket. You listen to a woman. Exactly. It's like, wait, here's the whole thing. But there are people who say, well, see, he listened to the woman. I said, but wait a minute. When you actually look at the woman and what God says to her, she doesn't get it because you have done this. In so many ways, it's like, girl, this sucks for you. It's like, I feel you. But you in this mess too. So, ah. <sighs> You're going to, you know, I, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you're going to bring forth children. 
your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And I know there are people who are going to argue back and forth over, should it be that her desire should be contrary to your husband or her desire should be um, for her husband? I think it's for her husband. There are a whole lot of things about that, but there are people who are much more skilled than I am in the Hebrew that can deal with that. But to put it very simply, this was power abuse. To reach out and take of the fruit of the tree was power abuse. They had the power to do it, but they were told not to, and they did that which should not be done. That is the abuse of power. Yeah, and, and they thought that, wisdom apart from God. Right. This is also the first theology discussion that you have in the scriptures too. Mm-hmm. That's not the not theology, but the, the thing is this. When you have theological discussions apart from God, theology apart from God leads to very dangerous things. Mm-hmm. And that's what we see happening here. And all of a sudden, now the result is humans have basically engaged in power abuse. And when you look at the relationship between the man and the woman in verse 16 of Genesis 3, we find that there is a perpetuation of power abuse because he's now ruling over her while she's desiring a relationship like it was in Genesis 1, where God gave them dominion and told them to be fruitful and multiply and do all these things together. Now the one who was to rule with Adam is being ruled by Adam, and there's a perpetuation of power abuse in all different facets of life ever since then. Cain killing Abel, people with ethnic wars, all of these things are nothing more than a perpetuation of the very sin that took place in the garden. And now when we stop and we look in Revelation, we see people attempting to weaponize scripture even because because here's the thing, scripture is authoritative. Therefore, if I can weaponize scripture against the Catholics, if I can weaponize the story and the account of Jezebel in, in, in Revelation 2 against women, if I can weaponize scripture, that which we all say is authoritative against someone else, then it puts me in charge. Think of the book of Eli movie. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's right. That's right, no one. Preach, no one. <laughs> so when you have the, like the movie, The Book of Eli, the whole goal was what? He wanted the Bible in order to rule over other people. And then he found that the Bible was in Braille and he couldn't do anything with it because he couldn't read it, which I thought was the best irony ever. And then you find out that Denzel Washington's character is blind the whole time. I was like, wait, how do you do all that? That, that's a whole other thing, but it was like, dang, man. And by the way, when I saw that movie on a completely different side note, I was actually describing the movie in the movie theater to a friend of mine who is blind. So <laughs> that was fun. And then I was like, bro, he's like, what? I'm like, he's blind. <laughs> Your friend is looking one. well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, basically, he was like, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I was like, well, it takes a blind man to see it because I sure didn't see it. Awesome. Hey, blind men do see Bartimaeus. That's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think, so those are some of the key things that we look at when we find that there are people who attempt to weaponize scripture against certain groups. But then we, we have to acknowledge, yes, there are negative female symbols and images in the book of Revelation. But there are also positive female images and symbols within the book that should be used to encourage and empower women to fulfill their God-given calls. It says a lot too about one's theology that they would rather use the negative example 
for their game yeah. rather than look at the positive and be like, this should guide the conversation. This should say, you know, hey, we have really great uh, Phoebe or Junia or all these other women. Why, why, why are they ultimately subordinated to a negative example somewhere else? You know, when we have positive examples, it's kind of a weird negative theology if you think about well, it. Well, and it's not just applicable to women at the end of the day. True. You know, okay. these women. Consider the slave Bible back in the day. <laughs> there we go. I'm like, uh, oops. We'll just take out all those parts that actually speak positively about you or how I, as a slave owner, am supposed to treat you. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey, can't have people reading saying. Right. Or can't have people. And I think that's the key thing. Just don't get the wrong idea. Yeah. I I think that ultimately in people's aim to garner and hold on to power. Yeah. Because there is a fear and I don't know where this fear comes from within our society, but there is a major fear that in the event that an individual gains power, somehow you lose power. Yeah, that zero-sum game. Yeah. Power is like money. If you have it, no one else has money. Right. But here's the problem yeah. with that theory. When you stop and you look at it, consider when in Numbers chapter 11, when God takes the spirit that is on Moses and puts it on the elders of Israel. Yeah. It, it doesn't say that the power of God upon Moses or that the spirit of God was in any way diminished. Or like, yeah. What we have to realize is that God is infinite and we are finite. So there is no diminishing of the power of an infinite God upon the finite beings as he just pours himself out upon all flesh. The great democratization of the spirit is a key threat to people who like power. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I like, yeah, I like that, that hmm. way to put it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 uh, Paul, uh, what, what is the great phrase in, uh, uh, in first Corinthians 12, many members, one spirit, but that spirit is for everyone. Mm-hmm. And with the spirits being what it is and not to get too preachy or of course, but, uh, I love the phrase, the democratization of the spirit, because it levels the playing. Actually, no, it doesn't level the play field. It elevates the playing field to the highest point. You are included in the full status as a son or a daughter or a child or whomever. I mean, imagine telling slaves in Corinth that many members, one spirit, you too have the spirit of God with you. They're Mm going to hear that and be like, wait, so uh, how about these, how how about this imprisonment? How about this, all this stuff? And Paul seems to be pretty un- unhappy with a lot of the stuff they're doing and says, that's why he, I, I would argue, got Onesimus free. Yeah. So something I'm working on right now. Uh, so the there's a couple of things going on in 1 Timothy 2, and then maybe we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk about more. So I'd love your opinion later if you want to do a little bit now. Um, uh, first Timothy too, like, again, the, 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 the concern is over a different teaching, which is very much tied to power plays and people mm-hmm. doing status uh, seeking. You've got two key texts used. Um, essentially, you've got an appeal to the Shema, God is one. And mm-hmm. then you've also got appeal to uh, Mark 10, uh, I think 44 and 45, mm-hmm. um, where Jesus gave himself as a ransom for, 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 for all uh, in uh, the Pauline uh writing and then for many in mark of course all is used in verse 44 interestingly so that's another reason mm-hmm. why i take the logion to be part of uh, mark 10 uh specifically but 
Um, it's interesting because uh, what you have are two scriptures that are essentially coming together and interpreting one another and the oneness of God and soul devotion to God has implications for um, not doing power plays like is in the case of uh, Mark uh, 10, mm-hmm. where James and John want to see right and left. Right. Nope. No, sorry about that. Yeah, um, I think that what we ultimately end up seeing here is the goal is that you not have power plays within the church. Is there hierarchy? Yeah. Of course there's hierarchy, but that does not mean that there are power plays. And here's the thing. We're throwing some power plays, especially, yeah. Right, Certainly. and I think that's the key thing. It's Amen. when you stop and think about it, what you find is people having power, but what are you supposed to do with your power? Yeah. You're supposed to use your power for the benefit of others. You're not supposed to use your power to disenfranchise or marginalize other people. Yeah. You're not supposed to use your power simply for your own personal gain. Yeah, to censor or to, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like people talk about, well, privilege. When people say, well, I have no privilege. I'm like, everybody has privilege in some, in some context. Yes. Depending on the context, various people have privilege. Even power in and of itself is relative. You talk to the CEO of a company. Well, you might have some lower level employees who are like running around fearing what the boss has to say. Let me tell you something. That boss goes home and the wife is like, look, you're taking the kid. I'm a high powered CEO. I don't care. You know what? You want to play that game with me that you're a high powered CEO? I'm not one of your employees, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, you know what? If you don't take the kid right now, we're not going to go see your mother this weekend. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. (laughs) All his high power CEO power just went out the window because of his wife. Like, Mm -hmm. the context is different. Therefore, the power structure is completely different. Yeah. I mean, what do you get? Your mom tells you to do something. I know, for for instance, I'm like, if I'm saying no, I better have a real good reason and a really fast headed start if I say no to my mother. Hey, Jesus became one of us and he couldn't say no to his mom. In the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be wielded for his own game, but he humiliated or emptied himself. But mother, it's not my time. Do whatever he says. Yep. (laughs) It's like, oops. I mean, but that's the kind of thing that we have to look at and we have to consider every single time we look at what is going on in scripture, what's going on in the book. So, I mean, consider this for a moment. When we stop and we see, and I think this is where the, the whole power play comes in. You, you look at issues of, of 1 Timothy. The whole issue, and, and I, I really disagree with the whole translation of exercise authority in 1 Timothy. Yeah, agreed, yeah. But, but it's, it's relativized it. by Mark 10, just saying. Right. Because Ecclesia is in that context. And so it's like, wait a minute. So that should, con- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use a, a good little like linguistic framework for this. Yeah. What comes before it should constrain the meaning potential of the text. Yeah, seriously. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so because of that, it's like, wait a minute. Exercise authority? No. Maybe abuse authority. Oh, wait. Yeah. Considering where they are in Ephesus, where women have been known to abuse authority based on the various cults in the area. Yeah, okay, that's a completely different issue than just, oh, well, women can't have authority. Um, okay. And that's the Mark uh, 10 um, context too, where it does use exousia, which is exercise authority, but it's set in terms of don't exercise authority authority the way the Gentiles do, lording it other, over each right. other. Right. So, Context. <laughs> well, and, and if you yeah. want some intertext, I, I tell people it's like 
is what Kane did to Abel a good thing? And of course the answer is no, he killed him. I'm like, yeah, he became an authentic, a murderer of his brother. Yeah. Is that a good model of relationships? No. So why would we go, oh, but somehow 1 Timothy 2 is talking about positive relationships. It's like, no, the whole context is clearly about abuse and false teaching and craziness and narcissism and wealth. Yeah, so just uh, some catch up for some some of our listeners. Um, in 1 Timothy um, to what's translated as exercise authority is um, authentic, basically authentic. Um, that's where it's coming from. And discussion is, does it mean exercise authority, usurp authority, dominate? Um, long story short, its use is, is thoroughly negative and it's a very, um, well, it's the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. Let's put it that way. So it's an odd term. Um, my Mark 10 example, which I think is very pertinent since it, an, or I would say uh, a text is, a part of that text is used in 1 Timothy 2 in this context is actually exousia, which is exercise authority. But that context is also negative. So that's, you know, just in case people wanted to know a little bit what we're saying. <laughs> well, I, I think either way, when yeah. you have negative uses of authority or abuses of authority, yeah. it's like, don't do this. And then I think the other don't issue is that when, when it comes down to it, the fact that, 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 that Paul is writing this and he says, I do not permit a woman to do this. He's not saying that he permits a man to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but people take it as, well, see, he's saying for women not to do this. Therefore men, we can do this. And it's like, no, that is not what he's saying at all. You you do not want to be the subject of the verb authenteo in any sort of extent literature. That's all I'm going to say. It just, it's coming. You also don't want to be the object because then you're left destitute. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just coming down to people apply the negatives to women only is essentially what ends up happening. If you see Mm -hmm. a, a female mentioned, um, our modern interpretive um, process is to apply it only to actual women, which is interesting in of itself um, and not men. But if you see a male example, it's applicable to all. Um, on that vein, um, we've got a couple of particular, you know, things to cover in Book of Revelation. Oh, yes. Um, let's look at um, first this concept of women as containers within and how that symbolism is used in Revelation. Well, I, th- I think that this whole notion of women as containers, it shows up a couple different times, even in like broader literature. But for example, the harlot and the bride in Revelation, they're both cities and the cities contain people, which, which is really, really interesting because you have that whole notion in, um, I wanna say it is chapter 18, that, that, that recollection of the language of Isaiah, of come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. And so it's like, wait a minute. So she's containing the people. And in the midst of her containing the people, it's like, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. You need to come out of her. You need to go into the bride. You need to be, be part of the bride. And so think about it. Even the bride is a city whose gates are open that the kings of the earth may bring the, the light their light into it. And so there's this whole issue of women as containers, but then think about this. I mean, when you stop and think about it, women are containers. They, they receive, birth. <laughs> yeah, I was like, they receive seed, they give birth. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Like you, you just carried around another human being for about 40 weeks of your life. Yeah, I'm pointing to this little bugaboo right here. Like, yeah, yeah like he, he was, <laughs> 
could feel those little feet. <laughs> and so I think th that's the key thing. And so you do find this whole framework of women serving as containers. And then it's like she receives plagues. And so there's this, this dual framework of the woman as container, but the woman is active. And so you, you see this time and time again. And I think that what you have to say is, okay, of which woman am I a part? Am I part of the bride? Am I yeah. part of the harlot? And ultimately, whichever woman you are a part of or you are contained in, whatever that woman experiences, you will experience as well. Because you're part it, of her, yeah. Being mm -hmm. Christ, but applied to the bride. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that's also, well, maybe we'll talk about that another time too, but um, I, I connect uh, Eve to Christ as well in first Timothy too. Um, mm. the singular, uh, and she will be saved through the childbirth if they plural continue faithful. faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's that same kind of concept, um, of kind of even like a comp I would say that gets maybe a little into the more metaphorical realm too. Right. Even past like even just symbolism, but into yeah. metaphors and complex. Oh, metaphors. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So that's, uh, that's kind of an interesting take. And then again, in the metaphorical realm, like you, you have, if you have um, a woman that's container, it's not just that you're just randomly there in one of them, you actually have agency and choice. And that's where some of the complexity comes in um, because, you know, this isn't, again, this isn't actually literal. <laughs> Do we see that kind of right. in uh, Luke's gospel with Mary? You know, get, the spirit says this will happen if you, and basically implies if you so choose to do so. And Mary's like, as it, as my Lord has requested, so and I'm paraphrasing, so too I acquiesce to this. So there's agency and, and, and will and participation in this thing. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so I, just as an implemental kind of thing, you have Christology right there as well. So. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, like sometimes, yeah, like this idea of Christ can be born, like, for instance, uh, from Eve, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, technically, yeah, it was Mary, but, you know, it, it's, it's that goes back to that Genesis prophecy, um, seed of the woman and well, get, and then the Septuagint, you know, is it who, who crushes the head of the serpent, but uh, that said, and, and oh, that, that gets really hairy. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at the end of the day, like even Paul can be pregnant and bear Christ in someone else. So it, it's just, we get into this odd world, but in this case, it's, you're, you're hit with in the book of revelation, a choice in terms of which, which woman do you want to be of or within? Um, right. And by the way, shout out to Beverly Roberts Gaventa on the whole issue oh, of maternal yeah. imagery with Paul. Amen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The best. Um, our, our mother, St. Paul is a good book for you all to read. Mm-hmm. But I, th I think that what we, we have to do is figure out how we can navigate the imagery. Yeah. Because even finding, you know, what people are a part of, who people are, um, what actions they participate in. So, for example, I'll give you a prime example of that. Yeah. Jezebel. Yeah. A lot of translations will say that she, you know, Sedu teaches and seduces. But when you actually stop and look at the Greek text, the term that is used there is translated in other places as deceives. Mm. So like the, the false prophet deceives the people of God. I think the yeah. harlot deceives. And so it's like, wait a minute. 
So there's this association based on activity in the book that must also be considered when, you, when you're looking at that. And even, you know, masculine figures like the second beast deceiving. So therefore, deception isn't simply associated with the women. Yeah, deception exactly. Deception is associated with the men. Or why is it that, you know, we use the, the, the language of um, Jezebel in the text to say, well, women can't do X, but we don't often do that with the language of Balaam in the text. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. Only works one way, Dan. <laughs> silly me. I know. Silly, silly me. In fact, you know, just so we don't confuse some people, we need to cut out, like you said, we got to cut out some parts of it because they can't be trusted with certain bits of information. Right. <laughs> nope. And look what happened to me. Like, I'm an egalitarian now. It's too late for me, Dan. Oops. Too bad, so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at a little bit more of the bride and the harlot in that case. Because um, again, like yeah. this is one of the most, I would say, misinterpreted um, parts, especially regarding women. And then also, actually, I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, some of the, what maybe the use of the imagery itself too. Because I know there's a lot of people who would critique and say, um, in a sense that maybe this gender hierarchy is getting furthered by the examples themselves. So like this association of women as harlots, like, I don't know, let's just mm -hmm. go there. Why not? <laughs> so, but see, I think that's the thing. It's like women as harlots, but then you have women as brides. Yeah. So, so what do we do with that? And I think here, here's the interesting part of that. Um, the Kings of the earth, committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with the harlot. Yeah. This is Revelation 18, nine. And so, and what they do, so they committed sexual immorality. So they were active participants in her activity. Yeah. It's kind of like they're the harlots. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, oops. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and so I think that's part of it. I mean, we have to look at and consider that whole piece. And it's like, there was, they're up her. It goes back to that containers, you know. Right. They're her children. In another, in the metaphorical world, they're also her children. So hence they act as right. she does. And so I think that that's where we have to figure out, okay, so why is it that we can give all of this? I mean, you, you read Revelation 18, you read Revelation 19, and all of a sudden it's like, wait, what? What is going on here? But then we want to leave out the part that all these people on the earth are like rejoicing over the death of the two witnesses. Yeah. Oh, wait, they, they'll take a false prophet over the prophets of God. Yeah. And so when we see like that, the, you know, that this woman, this harlot, that, that the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, that the kings of the earth commit sexual immorality with her. And here's the funny thing. That's actually mentioned twice in the cha same chapter, that the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. Mm. That the merchants of the earth um, also have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. It's like yeah. there is action on the part of people. So it's not simply, oh, see, she's done this. No, the greed and the lust for power that yeah. people have has actually led them to become engaged with the empire. Yeah. And to therefore engage with her as she's the one who rides the beast. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like in the biblical world, um, idolatry and especially power lust are tied to um, sexual immorality images, mm-hmm. uh, which you kind of very much go together. Right. And I think that's the key thing. And so then when you stop and you look at it, you run into this. So what about the bride? When you stop and consider the bride, you find a whole other framework, which stands in contrast, really, with the, with the harlot. So it's really funny because right before the end of the vision with the harlot, there's like this overlap at the very end of the harlot's vision. And the bride is like, I, I love it. It's almost as if there is a, in, um, in video editing, there's this thing called a crossfade, you know, where it's like one image starts to fade away and the other image starts to come in. But it's not like just a cut where it's like you were at the bride. I mean, you were at the harlot. Now you're at the bride. Right before the end of the vision, it's like, then I saw a new, a new heaven and a new earth from the, for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, that's definitely not the same as a harlot. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity and he will be with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, here's the thing. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. This is all rooted in that which is in the harlot. And that's really, it's like, hey, in case you didn't get it beforehand, before you even get to the vision of the bride, there is another option, folks. There's a bride who has all these things. Oh, and by the way, anybody who's associated with any of these things of the harlot, just know you're going to burn. <laughs> hey, I, I got a I got a question for you because I'm I'm somewhat dealing with this a little bit in the idea of figuration, especially because again my dissertation for First Timothy two, mm-hmm. um, and this idea that the biblical writer you you touched on this a little bit tend to blend two together. So you have this, um, for instance, this negative present or past reality that mm-hmm. it's not like you have discrete. Like this was then, or this is now, and that's tomorrow. That it's like the the future swarms into the present or the past, and mm-hmm. so you've got this negative reality that's kind of superimposed, or I, I don't know, infu- maybe infused is a better way to put it, with this like glorious future reality. So you're right. never dealing with just one. Is it is it kind of similar with this apocalyptic in, uh, imagery with the two, where you don't have just I don't know, the world's going to burn, it's over, but you have right. this other element too. How does that work? Because again, the way I think a lot of us have learned 
about end times theology is this idea that it, it's doomsday. It's the end. And yeah, right. it'll be great on the, uh, you know, later, but it, it's kind of, we're, we're, we're taught more the doom and gloom side rather than the two simultaneous. Can right. you and I think, speak a little bit on that? There we go. No, I, th- I think that that's, that's a really good observation because what ends up happening is individuals begin to come together and they look and they explore and they say, hey, why in the world is it that we don't have this framework of the blessing and the glory of the New Jerusalem? But I think that John's overlay of the two highlight the simultaneous natures of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. It's sort of like when I talk about the mark of the beast. I don't say, well, make sure you don't take the mark. My question is, which mark do you have? And on which arm? And on which arm? (laughs) Yes. And so the, the question becomes, okay, which mark do you have? Either you have the mark of God or you have the mark of the beast. And they're like, but how can I take it? It's not the end times yet. Well, if you don't have the mark of God, if you don't have the seal of the spirit, the Arabon, the down payment of your eternal salvation, then you automatically are marked with the mark of man. Yeah, and that's a religious mark. That's that's a temple alliance or allegiance. Um, that's a, that's the ash on your, your forehead. Um, that's, you know, who, who are you gonna worship? And right. how's that gonna manifest in your life? Who is your king? And those are the key things that we bring together. And here's what we here's what we we often don't really consider. We see all the horrible stuff that takes place with the with the harlot. Yeah. But then we begin to look and we see when John presents his vision of the, the bride, the fourth and final vision. We already know based on that. That crossfade, as I like to put it. Yeah. What's going on? But then we get to Revelation 22 at the end of the vision of the bride. We find this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the mm-hmm. land through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Ooh, it's back in a female container with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for for the healing of the nations. Now, here's the thing that I look at. Through this woman, through this woman, there are all these things that come together that highlight the healing of the nations. So what is this woman doing? This woman is undoing the pain. This woman is undoing the distress. This woman is undoing the damage of the previous woman we've just seen. The bride is actually presenting healing. Well, why do the nations need healing? Because the harlot has trampled upon them. Why do the nations need healing? Because the harlot has done damage to them. If you stop and think about it, when John first sees the harlot, it's really interesting because it's like the angel is having to interpret this to John, but he sees that she's seated on many waters. And it's like, wait, she's sitting on the beast and she's sitting on many waters, but then you find this one, this weird little phrase where as he's looking and he's marveling and he's like, what is going on? And it's like, and the waters are the people's languages and multitudes and nations. 
And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. Remember that Christ has redeemed people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and nation. And now all of a sudden you have, wait, and the prostitute is seated on the waters and the waters are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages all coming together. And so we see that there's this duality of experience that a redeemed people are living in an oppressive culture, in an oppressive environment, under an oppressive political regime. But here is the key thing. And I just need to make this statement now so I can get it out of my system. But here's the issue. The people of God are living under an oppressive political regime, but somehow they aren't fighting against their culture. They aren't fighting for political power within Rome. They aren't trying to vote out the emperor. They aren't trying to do any of these things. What they are concerned about and are called to be concerned about is their faithfulness to Jesus Christ amidst the culture that is calling them to something different. They're being called to live out what it means to be the people of God no matter their circumstance. So whether yeah. you are in, like whether you're in Philadelphia where you are experiencing the synagogue of Satan <laughs> or, or whether you're in Laodicea where you got all the money in the world, but you know what though? Your, your great economic power and gain is coming from the fact that you are participating in the harlot. That's the source. <laughs> that is the source of your economic gain. And yeah. so because of that, you're called to be the people of God and not even to, you're, you're called to not utilize ungodly or worldly means for godly goals. Yeah. You don't hop in bed with a harlot to do the harlot's bidding. Yeah. You don't ride the beast. Yeah. And again, like, we're not saying like, don't get out and vote. Like, I hope everyone votes part of, you know, being part of the process. But um, I like, I was just talking to someone, um, actually it was a couple of days ago. He was, um, I would say just very despondent about current events. And he kind of had this, like, actually we had this conversation, like this kind of futility view um, based in the book of revelation and like, well, it's okay, baby. <laughs> it wasn't him. It wasn't Jesus no one. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but he, he was just kind of like, well, we, we know that it's all going to like burn up anyway. It's all going to, yeah. Like, and that was his thinking. And I, I told him like, Hey, you know, like, um, kingdom already not yet kingdoms here Jesus came in the flesh like kingdom of God's also here he's like well we'll never have justice in this life I'm like we, we do in various degrees we, we don't and we do um, like the, again like we're agents of God's kingdom and Jesus and you know, Jesus is active in our world um, so it was just kind of like it's like the good news it's here you know the evangelion like you know it's okay like and I think I think in the when we're interpreting the book of Revelation, we again we we gravitate towards the negative imagery, whether it's to uniquely place it on women or you know to kind of take a fatalistic view of our own world. Um, you know, right. it, it's it's one of those things where there, there's more there's more to it. And it's like we just don't add, we don't read all of it. There we go. We don't truly read and interpret all of it, and especially right. not together. And we have to take it as a whole. We yeah. have to take the positive female imagery. We have to take the negative female imagery. We have to take the positive male imagery, the, the, the negative male imagery and look at it all because I think, and, and here's the funny thing. You have people who are from all the nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues and all of these things. And there are those who are positive and there are those who are negative. There yeah. are those that worship the beast and there are those that worship Christ. 
Yeah, that's right. And that's in our everyday choices, um, how, how we treat others at work, how we treat others at church, how we treat the people on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have this choice. And I mean, there's people that are going to choose to be power hungry, but we can choose um, Christ every day, all day, all night. Right. Um, all right. So last, maybe last one, um, got to ask. So can you go into some detail, please, please? about, I think it's Revelation 12, and the woman clothed in the sun. Ooh. How what much is, time we got? What is that all about? <laughs> there we go. What so, is that all about? So there are so many views on this one passage. I'm like, oh, dear. So it, it's really funny because if you actually um, go to, I think it's the Roman Catholic lectionary on the feast I want to say it's the Feast of the Blessed Virgin. This is like one of the few times Revelation shows up in the lectionary. Because you talk to most Roman Catholics, it would be, hey, it's Mary. No question about it. She gives birth to the male child. The male child is Jesus. Mary's the mother of God. We're good to go. Boom. I'm like, okay, that's fair. But then, and I mean, it, it, that's not a knock against the Roman interpretation of this. And then, because you have some Protestants who are like, never thought about it that way. Okay, may, maybe there's more to this whole Mary thing than what there. And I think I'm like, very, very special. Like, think about this. She, she was the mother of our Lord, is the mother of our Lord. So, I mean, you, you can't get around that. I prefer Theodokos. Just saying. Me too. And it was funny because one time I was in the gym and I was talking to a theology friend of mine. And so instead of saying that we, we say it like Theotokos and Christotokos and somebody goes, what kind of tacos are y'all talking about? <laughs> it was beautiful. But I, I think that when you look at this passage, there's a lot going on and you need to know a little bit about um, like Greco-Roman mythology and consider the birth of Apollo. And so there's so many different elements that align with this. I mean, you have the dragon, you have the, I mean, you, you have like the serpent or the, the great serpent, you have like the, the, the waters that are aiding. And so all of these pieces come together. And so I tell people, compare this. I mean, you have the, you have the great red dragon. Compare that to Python in the birth of Apollo. I mean, the water is, is there. You have waters in both of them. You have this imagery and then all of a sudden, who is Apollo though? Apollo was seen to be the, the divine son of Zeus who was embodied as the emperor. And so all of a sudden you're seeing this whole framework of the story of the birth of Apollo. And you're like, wait, this sounds really familiar. This seems really familiar. Wait a minute, it's Jesus, wait a minute. Jesus is the son of God. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus is king. Oh, wait a minute. I've been so confused this whole time because I thought that Apollo was the son of God. I well, thought the woman Apollo clothed was... in the sun is Jesus. Huh? So wait, is the woman clothed in the... Are you saying the woman clothed in the sun is Jesus? Or no. What are you saying? So what I'm saying isn't that the woman clothed the sun is Jesus. She gives birth to the male child right. of Jesus. Yeah. What you end up finding, though, is in the birth of Apollo, this was simply his mother. I don't think that the goal of 
Revelation 12 is to identify the woman as Mary or as That's true. Yeah. Or anything of that nature. I think it's the giving real you images, yeah. Is giving the people images with which they would have been familiar with within their culture. Because I mean, think about it. Who wouldn't know the story of the birth of Apollo? And so now all of a sudden you have these images that come together. And if you overlay the story of the birth of Apollo with this passage in, in Revelation 12, all of a sudden you see a lot that's in common. And I think oddly enough that the, the, the chapter, though it relates to the one, I mean, I mean, the woman is very important right yeah. here. She gives birth to the male child, but we also know that those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus are her offspring. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's where it gets kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And then going back to the containers. So it, it's almost like you've got maybe a conflation of imagery there. It does seem that way because I mean, you know, th- those who are faithful to Christ are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so then it's like, wait a minute. So am I of this woman? And so in so many ways, the fact that you have a bad, good, bad, good framework, I'm, I sort of toy with the idea in my head of, based on the parallelisms between Jezebel and the harlot, yeah. where are the parallels between the woman clothed with the sun and the bride? Not saying that they're one and the same, but there's a relationship between them, even if yeah. it's rooted simply in Christ himself. Yeah, yeah, either way, yeah, it's rooted in Christ. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, this is, well, and you can kind of wonder too, like, is the child the church too? Like, ooh. Yeah. And I, I ask too, cause like, um, and I don't know, like, I don't know, first of all, I'll put that out of the way. Um, just toying with some ideas. Um, I, cause I actually think there's, um, parallels between Eve and Christ, mm-hmm. for instance, in first Timothy mm-hmm. too. Um, and then I don't know, it just, when you get into like the, how metaphors are used, you can start to stack things very easily. Right. So I don't know. And, and, and that's one of the key things is like, People say, well, you don't, you don't mix metaphors, but you can stack metaphors in order to gain something very new. Yeah. I mean, and that's how it works. You know, you, you take a bunch of concepts and then you get something, um, you get greater insight. Um, and it mm-hmm. tells you more about in the metaphorical world, um, about the subject that you're using, you know, so a mother, you know, oh, Paul and his apostolic role is a mother, you know, so you right. learn something more about mothers and simultaneously more about Paul and his role as an apostle. And then, oh, wait, if Paul is an apostle as a mother, how does that mean? What does that mean for implications for how I conduct myself in seeking authority? Mm-hmm. You know, same with, you know, slavery imagery, Im- imagery with Paul and other things. So, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So how do you interpret? So what what is Dan's, you know, there's lots of, you know, interesting ideas and, you know, again, Sometimes text can mean more than one thing, but not anything. Mm. Um, what would be your take um, in terms of a, a reasonable interpretation that you prefer for um, the woman clothed with the sun? Please say it involves polar bears in Alaska. And work the polar bears yeah, in somehow, just bears. to make us happy. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> I, I ultimately think that it is that, that relationship between the birth of Apollo narrative and um, Jesus being presented here. And I think that ultimately this idea of the woman clothed with the sun isn't 
I, I don't think she's the key figure, oddly enough, but I think she, she plays a major role. What I mean by that is this. When you look at the birth of Apollo, you find um, his mother, Leto, I believe her name is, and what she's doing is she is avoiding Python. She's escaping from him. But what is but Python's whole goal is to bring destruction to the woman, to bring destruction to Apollo. And all of a sudden, because you see this birth of Apollo narrative that plays out and you see the Christ figure that's born and now ascends to his throne in heaven, it highlights the ultimate authority of Christ. It highlights his kingship. And actually, in so many ways, the story deposes Apollo of kingly authority in the minds of the reader. I think that, I think that that's what we see taking place. This removal of Apollo from authority. I mean, it, it's really a great subversive text when you think about it in that way, because I mean, if Apollo is supposed to be embodied as the emperor and is the son of God, well, we know already in the book of Revelation, Jesus is identified as the son of God. He is the one who sits and who holds the seven stars in his hand. He is the one who has all power and authority and is the ruler of kings on earth. So even if you want to take the route of the ruler of the kings on earth, because he is exalted, what does he do? It says in verse five of chapter 12, she gave birth to a male child, which is really funny because in the Greek, it's this really weird framework. It's like, he gave birth to a son, a male child. And it's like, wait, like, why is there this hyperlexicalization going on? Wait, I just used a really nerdy term. No, Hold my me, first thought, me. you know how bad it is? My first thought was, well, that's hyperlexicalization. Oh, you then you said it. Okay. All right. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in tune with that. Okay. Yeah. That's, I remember reading that. I actually remember seeing that phrase and be like, I've no, boy, this is redundant. What the heck? Right. And so for those who don't know, hyperlexicalization is where you, you use terms compounded upon one another to actually emphasize a point. So, I mean, a son is a male child. So why do you need to say a male child, like a son, a male, like, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? So the language actually focuses in on him, but what does he do? He is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So she gave birth to this child and then he's caught up to, to, his, to, um, to God into his throne. And so it, Apollo has been deposed as ruler. Apollo has been deposed as son of God because guess what? He was caught up to God and we already know that the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron is the son of God. Oh, wait a minute. So how do you get that, Dan? Easy. If you go back to Revelation chapter two and you read the message to the church in Thyatira, 2.18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So he gives his whole framework. And then what does he say? Verse 26, the one who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. So Christ, based on his rule, based on his authority that he has received from God the Father, he now shares that authority with the church for those who do what? Who overcome and who keep his works. 
So with that, going back to Revelation 12, we readily identify this as Jesus, but even in our identification of the male child as Jesus, we recognize that the woman is the is basically the feature by which, or the sign by which to use John's own language, he actually deposes Apollo from his throne within the empire. Wonderful. And I mean, if God can share authority, I think we can too. <laughs> what? <laughs> Ooh, that's like a mic drop moment right there. Hold up. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> Nolan. Sorry, Nolan just grabbed my notes. Nolan has things to say too, but he's looking through <laughs> the notes. Very loudly. All right. So Dan, I'm going to do something a bit off the cuff right now, but just for the next two or three minutes, you have a few seconds to answer these questions. Oh no. Yeah. Uh-oh. So don't worry. It's they're very simple. Uh, that'll be favorite. So I'm going to ask you, because I actually don't know this, and I think people will find this to be very fun. Favorite movie of all time. And I'm not talking about best movie of all time. I'm talking Dan's favorite movie. Or you, if you can't pick between two, you can pick two. Girl, the Devil Wears Prada. Devil Wears Prada? Some of the best acting you'll ever see. My goodness. Cerulean, that's all I can say. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, TV show. It can be animated or live action, currently running or not running. Oh, I know what mine is. This is horrible for somebody who hasn't watched television in years. Okay, that's, that's fine. I, I, for me, it's a split between the Boondocks and uh, the first eight seasons of The Simpsons. Uh, no, actually, no, it's Scrubs or The Boondocks for me. I can't pick which one, so I'll go to. Star Trek. Okay, Scrubs, it made my heart go to ER. It used to sh- come on Thursday nights on NBC at 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, favorite guilty pleasure snack? Like, got to have it. It's, it's your jam. Me, it's pretzels. <laughs> Ice cream. Pretzels. Ice cream. Cobbler. Peach cobbler. Okay, oh. can't beat that. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, drink, alcoholic, soda, flavored water, whatever. Like you get, like your favorite drink. Mountain Dew, no ice, but from a fountain machine. Oh, mine used to be considered water in the U.S. <laughs> water, gotcha. Uh, and you also work out. You're big on fitness. Free weights or machine? Free weights. I figured I'm with you on that. I prefer it for It just feels better in the hand. I'm not going to lie. Yep. And uh, final one, uh, sports team, any sports team. Or you're not, it can be you're not in the sports, but you got to have a team. MMA. MMA, yeah. I would have to say the University of Alabama Crimson Tide football team. Is that the Roll Tide? Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. All right. I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, but I, I love me some college football. That's, that's I like the Maple Leafs, but we, we got to work on our Maple Leafs, though. <laughs> we've yeah, been, you do. We've been working. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while. It hasn't been. Like ever. Right. <laughs> 62. Anyway, but I was just curious. It's one of those things I never asked Dan. I'm like, you know, I don't know if I know Dan's favorite movie, but now we know. My favorite movie is Sin City or District 9. Got to pick one of the two. I can't pick. So, well, <laughs> you know, Devil Wears Prada. I can't tell you. I, I actually own the DVD and yeah. It's some of the best writing, some of the best acting I've seen in a in that kind of movie before. Like it's bar none. Yeah. So thank you for indulging the final two minutes of this. But thank you again for spending all this time with us and for with him as well, even though he's he been... wants my glasses and he can't have them. Yeah. Uh-huh. But thank you for taking the time to be with us and for using your gifts to educate us and our, our listeners and for waving at Nolan, who's waving back right now. Aren't you very polite? I don't know where he got that from, but yeah, just thank you for taking the time to be with us, Dan. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you and talk with you and learn and, and just geek out with our theology nerd hats on. So thank you for spending all this time with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.